This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with William Davis. William Davis is a cardiologist and an author who has written both the best-selling book Wheat Belly and his most recent Supergut. During our conversation, Bill talks about the human microbiome, the role of the gut as the second brain in the human body, how a modern diet and a modern microbiome may be contributing to common ailments of civilization like inflammation and depression, his suggestions for healthy eating and lifestyle, and what supplements he suggests people consume to improve their microbiome. Nothing is more important to human flourishing than one's health and Bill offers some original insights and under-the-radar options that people may want to consider. He discusses the role of antibiotics in our culture, bacteria and endotoxemia, and gives advice for healthy living. I know that outside-the-box tinkering with my own lifestyle has dramatically improved my own health through mitigating stress, getting adequate sleep, eliminating or significantly reducing certain foods, and doing daily rigorous exercise that includes heat or cold exposure. Healthy people are happy people and good citizens, and I think we should be open to tinkering with our habits and foods to maximize our well-being. And perhaps one or two ideas from this conversation might resonate with you and help you in your own life. I hope you enjoy this conversation with William Davis. Bill, it is a real joy for me to meet you and talk to you. And I know today we are going to be talking a lot about health, which I think for all people is the most important thing that they have in this world. It is wonderful to meet you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Welcome to the show. Glad to do it, Dan. I told you before we started recording that there were a bunch of quotes and notes that I had made in the prior week or so to this conversation that I wanted to to read out. And I thought to set the table for you, um, I would read a, a, a passage from your most recent book, Supergut, that I found interesting and important. And I want to just allow you to listen to your words and then to kind of have at, it, have at it and add any additional color that you'd like to add. And you open the book with the following quote from Frankenstein, young Frankenstein. And, and it is this, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I can help you with that hump. And Igor says, what hump? Shortly thereafter, you have a quote that I'm going to read out, which will take a minute or two, but I want to, I want to just make sure I'm setting the table properly and allowing to have some, some context to your work, which I think will allow for that color to be uh, articulated well here. 11 years ago in the wave, and this is me quoting you, 11 years ago in the first of my series of wheat belly books, 
I described how agricultural scientists and farmers have changed the plant called wheat, transforming a traditional five-foot-tall plant into an 18-inch-tall, thick-stocked, large-seeded crop, a change that required thousands of genetic experiments. The final... The final genetically altered result did indeed pr- produce a yield, a high yield crop, enabling farmers to harvest several fold more bushels per acre than than a, than of it, traditional strains. A boom in yield that helped feed the hungry and starvation plagued underdeveloped countries. But this new crop also inflicted a collection of unexpected effects on the humans who consumed it. Effects ranging from appetite stimulation to temporal lobe seizures. Sabora to a 400 increase in celiac disease. Formerly rare type 1 and type 2 diabetes became mainstream conditions, and humans who used to eat to live were transformed into a population with insatiable all-you-can-eat appetites. The health consequences of consuming modern wheat are so destructive, so unnatural, that I labeled it Franken-grain. I found that removing frankengrains from diet yielded substantial, often life-changing health benefits. Thousands of people experience effortless weight loss and transformations in their health, restoring them to 1950s-like flat tummies and freeing them of numerous modern health conditions. And yet a substantial, pro- a su- substantial proportion also reported something like this. I lost 47 pounds without even trying, and I'm no longer hungry all the time. I am no longer pre-diabetic and I'm off two blood pressure pills. My rheumatoid arthritis is about 70% better and I was able to stop several thousand dollar per month injectable drugs. But I I still have some flare-ups and and had to resume the steroids and nepro, naproxen. In other words, removing frankengrains from their diet and adding in the handful of nutritional supplements I recommended, which reversed health phenomena such as insulin resistance did not fully address all all of people's health issues. Some people reported losing, say, 70 pounds with only another 30, 30 pounds to go, but their weight, light, weight loss stalled despite doing everything right. The wheat belly lifestyle includes basic efforts to recultivate healthy microbial species dwelling in the GI tract, that is, the intestinal microbiome. But something was missing. My first question to you, sir, what was missing? So in that the wheat belly program where we eliminate all wheat and grains, this creation of a laboratory, essentially, yeah. we address common nutrient deficiencies, not because of the diet, but because of modern lifestyles. We live indoors, wear clothes. We don't get vitamin D. Yeah. We have to filter our drinking water because all water is essentially tainted uh, with herbicide, pesticide, and sewage. So we have to filter it. That removes all magnesium. So we address the common nutrients that are lacking, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids, iodine, vitamin D. Uh, and we also, in the basic program, uh, folded in a high-potency multi-species probiotic and so-called prebiotic fibers that nourish microbes. But even then, Dan, as, as you read, there were people who encountered a plateau in some fashion. Some people did have full restoration of health, but some people did not. They got better, lost weight, became non-diabetic, but then got stuck at some level. And I asked, well, why? What, what is, because what I'm doing is not, we're not treating things. I urge everybody to get away from this idea that we're going to treat things. We're going to treat yeah. high blood sugar. We're going to treat high blood pressure. I think uh, this is going to sound like a, uh, a very subtle difference, but it's a big deal. Rather than thinking about treating things, let's address the factors, common factors that allow diseases to emerge in the first place. Yeah. 
So when you do that, Blood pressure is normalized. Blood sugar is normalized. Weight loss proceeds. Joint pain. In other words, the whole landscape of health, except for infection and injury, of course, yep. um, goes away. And whether it was labeled type 2 diabetes or hypertension or fatty liver or sleep apnea or seborrhea or depression, more often than that, they just go away but not always. And so I asked what was missing. It was clear that there was more required, uh, more effort required in the world of the microbiome. One of the things that uh, became clear, and I was skeptical of this at first, is that a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which has been known about for over 30 years, but I thought it was rare yeah. until this new device. Yeah, I got one of the devices, one here. It's called an air <laughs> device. <Yeah. laughs> you blow into it, and it registers how much hydrogen you're producing on your smartphone, zero to 10. Mm. And when it first came out, the inventor, Dr. Angus Short in Dublin, Ireland, he invented it for his now wife who had irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, and was told to go on a low FODMAPS diet, low fiber, low sugar diet, because it reduces bloating and diarrhea in people with IBS. So, But he saw how difficult it was for her that she would uh, get exposed and have gas and bloating and diarrhea. So he invents this device to help her detect if she had slipped up or not. He releases it commercially. I get a hold of it. I call him up. I say, Angus, that's not. So I'm telling the inventor, that's not what you invented. <laughs> what you invented is a mapping device. Hmm. It's a mapping device to tell you where microbes are living in your gastrointestinal tract. They're supposed to be in the colon, right? That's where the vast majority of microbes are supposed to be in the four or five feet uh, long colon. And as you ascend up into the ileum, jejunum, 24 feet, duodenum and stomach, you should be sharply diminishing numbers of microbes such that when you get to the stomach and esophagus, should be very few microbes. Hmm. Well, because of many factors in modern life, such as antibiotic exposure, that's a biggie, uh, antibiotics in food, herbicides in food, glyphosate in Roundup is, a, is an herbicide. It's also an antibiotic. Monsanto filed patents for it as an antibiotic. Uh, food additives like preservatives, potassium sorbate, sodium benzoate. These are antimicrobial in food and in you. Yeah. Uh, synth synthetic sweeteners like aspartame. Emulsifying agents like uh, polysorbate 80 and carboxymethylcellulose and carrageenan, uh, chlorinated drinking water. So all these things all conspire to massively change your microbiome in the GI tract. And one of the things that's happened is we've lost literally hundreds of species. And these were species, not all of them, but many of them did things, good things for us. Mm. And we've lost them. And one of the effects when you lose those, those good bacteria, they suppressed the unhealthy, mostly stool microbes. So we lose the good guys, the bad guys, mostly stool microbes, proliferated, and then remarkably ascended into the small bowel, 24 feet up the small bowel. And so this is a device that tells you if you have microbes, large numbers of microbes in the small bowel, it's all about timing. We take something that microbes eat, like inulin, uh, in, in formal testing in a lab, they use lactulose, the sugar lactulose, but we use inulin. And then you test every 30 to 45 minutes. You get a baseline first. There's a prep involved. This is all explained in my super gut book because I, I point that out because the instructions that come with the device currently are wrong. They're meant for that IBS FODMAPS thing. 
And so uh, Angus is in the process of changing it, but he's got some regulatory hurdles. And so it takes time to change the instructions. But right now, the instructions for use, <laughs> tells you how to use the device, but not how to interpret it. So how to interpret it and how to use it properly is in my super good book, seven page discussion about this device. Yep. But it will tell you if you have microbes. And Dan, what shocked me. So I thought this was maybe you know, a few percent of people had it. No, 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 no. It's well over, well over, conservatively, 50% of all people who test, test positive. Now, you might say, well, maybe the device is inaccurate. Well, people go on a program to eradicate this issue. They come back and they test negative. And they say things like, and the skin rash, it wouldn't go away. I took steroid creams for 10 years, finally went away. My depression finally lifted. I got off the antidepressant. I finally lost the last 30 pounds. My hemoglobin A1C, that reflection of long-term blood sugar. I got it down from 9.8. I was type 2 diabetic, down to 6.1, but short of perfect, 5.0 or less. It finally dropped. Hmm. In other words, I saw all the residual problems, nearly all of them, go away with efforts to eradicate this problem. Then I took another few steps further. So we lost all those microbes among which were very important species. My favorite one is Lactobacillus reuteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German microbiologist who recovered this microbe in 1962 from a woman's uh, breast milk. Hmm. And this is a very important microbe for two big reasons. One is it colonizes the upper GI tract, the small bowel where SIBO occurs, and it produces what are called bactericins. These are natural antibiotics effective against fecal microbes. So the loss of rotorite is likely a big reason. It's very susceptible to common antibiotics like penicillin and amoxicillin. So you take an antibiotic, you lose rotorite, you lose its upper GI protective effect, and fecal microbes climb up. There are other microbes do this also, but rotorite is one of the most important. The other great thing about rotorite is it also sends a signal via the myenteric nervous system, there's a nervous plexus in your GI tract, up to the vagus nerve to the brain, to the hypothalamus, and it tells your brain to release oxytocin, hormone oxytocin. So if we think about this for a moment, modern people, almost all of us, have lost lactobacillus rotori because of all those issues, antibiotics, et cetera. With it, we've lost the capacity to boost oxytocin to high levels. Oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy, yeah. And connection and generosity and understanding other people's points of view. So restoring Rotori, we're seeing this caused generosity, love, affection, in- more intense affection for other people, tolerance for other people's opinions. So that's the emotional effect. People who have attempted suicide, by the way, Dan, have 50% lower oxytocin levels than people who don't attempt suicides. Yeah. So there's a really important connection there too, just from a suicide viewpoint. But what's really surprising is the effects go beyond those of, those mental emotional effects are big in my view. Those are really, really important, really powerful. And I'm seeing it play out in thousands of people doing this. But there's other physical effects also. When you boost oxytocin, ladies go berserk because they start to lose their wrinkles. Uh, there's an increase in dermal thickness. That's why there's an increase in moisture. Ladies say, I'm saving all this money because I don't have to use skin moisturizers anymore. Mm. Uh, Guys love it because you have a restoration of youthful muscle and strength, huge boost, a return to youthful strength. There's an increase in libido. 
there's a reversal of vaginal atrophy that, that it, it becomes a universal phenomenon as a woman ages by age 65 or so, about 90% of ladies will have vaginal itching, irritation, discharge, smell, and pain upon having sex, as well as low libido. So restore right, right? Libido goes back up. Vaginal atrophy is reversed. Moisture, all that stuff goes away. Uh, there's an acceleration of healing. Your hair, fingernails, and toenails will grow faster. Sleep is deeper. The REM periods of sleep are lengthened. That's the restorative phase of sleep. And in other words, so, Dan, think about this. So, youthful muscle and strength. Oh, I should mention preservation of bone density. Preservation of bone density. Increased libido. Acceleration of healing. I think what we're doing with the restoration of rotary and oxytocin is turning the clock back 20 yeah. years. And you'll see this on people's faces. They'll say, I'm 75, but people are mistaking me for my early 50s. And it's happening. So we're seeing a youth-preserving, youth-restoring effect. Now, now, Dan, that's one microbe. That's one (laughs) stinking microbe. There's many more. I I think for people that are unfamiliar with this line of research, right? We were talking about this offline as well before we started recording. This seems unbelievable. And, um, you know, there... seems to me to be a bit of a resurgence of knowledge or at least an interest in this general subject in the in American culture. A popular phrase I know is that it, it has reached me and I think has reached a lot of my friends is that, you know, the gut is essentially the second brain. And the line that I found that I, I think is probably about correct, um, a lesser known nervous system is in our guts, our second brain. It communicates with the brain in our head. You just alluded to some of this as well uh, in your comment. And there's another quote that I'd love to read and to get your your thoughts on. And you, you also mentioned uh, depression and a, a huge reason why I was interested in talking to you about you know your research and your the knowledge that you have is simply about human wellness and human health and what might be available but not widely known in you know, lifestyle choices and options that people may have to restore health in any capacity. And this is a, a section of your book as well that is related to bacteria and depression. And this is me quoting you again. It's been known for years that about a third of people who experience depression, a potentially debilitating condition that is often poorly responsive to prescription antidepress- antidepressant medication, show increased measures of inflammation such as C-reactive protein and other markers. But what could this source of information be that drives depression in the absence of, say, a red swollen knee or pneumonia? The same people who show increased markers of inflammation with depression are also those most likely to prove resistant to prescription antidepressant medication. In a number of clinical trials, brave volunteers without without depression have willingly received injections of the LPS endotoxin derived from the cell walls of bacteria. Within hours of receiving this artificial increase in LPS, they developed the signature emotions of depression, dark moods, anxiety, loss of motivation, disinterest in everyday activities, impaired cognitive function. Imaging of of brain function in these people revealed all all the brain hallmarks of depression. The unavoidable conclusion. The products of bacterial breakdown that enter the bloodstream play a role in causing depression, especially depression unresponsive to conventional treatments. 
Not surprisingly, this has prompted the pharmaceutical industry to explore adding various anti-inflammatory drugs to conventional antidepressants in order to block some of these some of these inflammatory mediators. Once again, disregarding the cause of the inflammation, namely factors associated with bacterial growth, and only treating the symptoms. Lost from these observations, however, is the fact that outside of these artificial situations in which LPS is directly injected, the high levels of LPS circulating in the bloodstream of many people in everyday life originate with bacterial overpopulation that leads leads to endotoxemia. I believe that addressing disruptions to healthy, balanced bacterial populations and the endotoxemia, excess LPS that that results, makes a lot more sense than focusing on a downstream symptom. You know, it seems to me in that quote, you are talking about root cause, right? And I'd love for you to add any color that you think might be helpful to a listener who knows essentially nothing about any of what was just mentioned in what what may have been at the root of depression that they have. You know, I, I'm sure this is true of you and, and your patients. I know so many people personally in my own life who are clearly experiencing depression, have those symptoms of dark moods. It's very difficult to watch. And these people don't know what to do. They're, they're caught in their own loop of darkness. And if you could, I'd love to get any feedback you might have to that quote in as you know simple you know unjargoned language as possible to people that are suffering to try to get at the root cause of what might be at the heart of why they're just feeling so terrible yeah big issue dan yeah yeah and what i'm very interested in so what what's happening to people is we lose all those species like we talked about and their place these fecal stool microbes proliferate then ascend What's important about that is when fecal microbes like E. coli and salmonella and pseudomonas and proteus and citrobacter, when those stool microbes proliferate and occupy all 30 feet, all 30 feet of a human GI tract, well, the small bowel is not well equipped to handle that. It has a very fragile single layer mucus barrier, unlike the colon, where microbes are supposed to be, that has a thick, durable two-layer mucus barrier. So when these fecal microbes make it to the small bowel, they increase the penetrability, the permeability of the small bowel. And so these trillions of microbes, 30 feet, they only live for a few hours, Dan. They don't live for decades, only a few hours. When they die, many of their cell wall components, specifically the LPS endotoxin you mentioned, Mm. enters the bloodstream. And that, that's a critical finding. It finally got validated in 2007 by a Belgian group and has been corroborated numerous times since. So 30 feet of microbes break down products like endotoxin enter the bloodstream and explains how microbes in the GI tract can be experienced as depression in the brain or Parkinson's disease or dementia or as a skin rash like rosacea or psoriasis, or as muscle and joint pain like fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis. In other words, virtually all human disease has to be now reconsidered, re-examined in light of the contribution of the of endotoxemia. Now, the problem is what do you what? Get a doctor to understand that because they don't read the science. They talk to sexy sales reps in miniskirts. So they don't know anything about this. If they do, they'll prescribe it antibiotic. Well, now wait a minute. Antibiotics kind of got us here, right? We're going to solve a problem, fight fire with fire, you know? 
Uh, and the best they have is something called rifaximin or zyfaxin. And its efficacy is about 50%. And because most of my colleagues don't understand what's going on for real, there's a lot of recurrence. They don't tell you, tell you how you got it in the first place. There's no replacement of lost microbes. So it's a very meager effort. Hmm. There are some herbal antibiotics that you can use. Only two have been validated in clinical trials, the candibactin regimen, the FC-cytal dysbiocide regimen. But I'll tell you what I did a couple of years back. I asked this question. So we got these million, tens of millions, by my estimation, easily 160 million people in this country. I'd say, I know that sounds nuts, have yeah. this SIBO. But if, if you go through this simple exercise, there are numerous studies asking questions like this. What proportion of people with fatty liver have SIBO? 50%. Well, 50% of the U.S. population has fatty liver, 160 million people. 50% of that is 80 million. So right there alone, you've got 80 million people we know have SIBO. If you ask, how about obese? About 42% of the population now is now obese. What population, what proportion of people with obesity have SIBO? About 50%. So that's another 20 some million. Go through type 2 diabetes, autoimmune diseases, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis. You add up. Now there's overlap, of course. You can have a fat type 2 diabetic with fatty liver, yeah. but you easily exceed 100 million and more likely 150 million. So this is everywhere. Mm. And the solutions are not very good. And so I asked this question if you have 30 feet of microbes and it's, they're exploring their effect via this endotoxemia issue. And maybe you're having depression, say. If we took a probiotic, will it go away? No. <laughs> you might reduce symptoms a little bit, but you're still left with 30 feet of overpopulated microbes. No surprise. Most commercial probiotics make no sense. They're haphazard, slapdash collections of microbes. It's getting better. There's a handful of, of commercial products that are put together thoughtfully like the sugar shift product by my friend, Dr. Raul Keno, but the rest are just haphazard collection. So no surprise, they don't, they don't work. So I asked these questions. What if we chose microbial species that colonize the upper GI tract? That's yeah. where SIBO occurs and produce bactericins. Those are natural antibiotics effective against stool microbes. So I chose three. I chose a strain of Lactobacillus rotari, a strain of Lactobacillus gasseri, and Bacillus coagulans. Now, one of the things we do when you buy probiotics, they're typically sold to you in very small numbers. It sounds like a lot to buy something with two billion. If it was money, it'd be a lot. But in microbes, it's almost nothing. So one of the things I did was grow them. And we grow them. It looks like yogurt. It tastes like yogurt. It's not yogurt. <laughs> but we ferment these things and we do it for an extended period. When they make yogurt in a factory, one, they use different microbes and they ferment for four hours. Well, rotari, for instance, like missiles, rotari, they don't have sex. They don't, there's no male and female microbes. They just double. Hmm. One becomes two, two becomes four. So rotari doubles every three hours. Well, if you're in a factory, you got nothing after four hours. So we fermented for 36 hours. I performed something called flow cytometry to count the microbes. We're getting around 250 billion per half cup syrup. In other words, we amplify counts about a thousand fold. So we ferment for 36 hours. These three microbes consume a half a cup a day. Now, this is this is anecdotal of 35 people who've done this. 90% have tested negative 
on the air device after testing positive. Now, I w- we will perform a formal clinical trial. Like this this morning, I had a long conversation with a scientist friend about how we're going to plan this clinical trial to prove, but so far, 90%, which is better than any antibiotic, better than herbal or otherwise, we're getting people and we're seeing the physical results. People say, wow, first of all, you can get what's called die-off. That is, when you, when you kill off microbes, you can get a little depression or anxiety or racing heart because you're causing a surge in endotoxemia from killing off microbes. Lasts maybe a couple days or so. Uh, but you consume the yogurt. We do it for four weeks. And so far, 90% of people tested negative. So we will examine that in a, in a clinical trial. But my, my, my point to all this is that, that, you know, if the solution was colectomy, removing your colon, <laughs> you better be damn certain you know what you're doing, right? Yeah. Or what if the solution was, you know, a frontal lobotomy or, or exploratory laparotomy? Well, you better be damn confident of the diagnosis of the situation. Well, what if the solution is a yogurt? Well, you don't have to be completely confident. And when we actually, many of us consume that yogurt long-term because what you're really doing is replacing lost, very important so-called keystone species, foundational species that support other microbes. And so, because there's also that high recurrence rate in the SIBO. So consuming yogurt, maybe every third day or something like that, it seems to be doing really well. So I think that I have stumbled on a food, a, a probiotic way to get rid of SIBO. So far it's working. Yeah. I, again, I mean, I, th- I do think this, this kind of information is, will be news to a lot of people that there is any connection at all between your lived experience and what is happening inside your gut. And maybe to, to back up in your own life or in the, in, in the research of <clears throat> this line of inquiry, what do you know about how we discovered that there was any link there in the first place? You know, this, um, I know, for example, when I was a kid, I was told that I was, you know, a, a healthy diet included six to 12 servings of wheat and bread every day. Um, th- there was no, there, you know, the, the, the food pyramid system was in every public school in America. I was eating every morning, you know, either bagels or cereal. I remember just anecdotally as a kid when I was going to school on the bus at six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, you know, shoving four pieces of white bread into my mouth, and I always felt like total shit the first three or four hours of the day, not never linking what I was putting in my body to how I was feeling as a human being. But you know, to take the the gut connection to the brain and the information that you know about the microbes and its effect on human psychology and a a human life. When did we begin? When did scientists, when did you begin to know there is something there? There is something that maybe we hadn't been considering that is worth exploring in the first place. You know, it was all piecemeal, Dan. There was not just one uh, moment where all, you know, a light bulb went off. It happened piece by piece. For instance, uh, Dr. Uh, F. Curtis Dohan, he was a general practitioner helping out with some field work in the jungles of New Guinea. And so these are Western scientists, of course, and they were uh, studying this population of 6,000 people, pretty much people who indigenous people who never saw Western people before. So these Westerners come in well-equipped and they start trading with them. Uh, I'll give you this cornbread or this bagel if you give me that 
shrunken head or spears <laughs> like that. And Dohan, being a doc, noticed that in the population of 6,000, he observed informally only six people with the signs of schizophrenia. And these are the people like you see in New York City who are talking to Jesus out loud yeah. and gesticulating. It's pretty obvious when you have, especially paranoid schizophrenia, it's pretty obvious. So he only saw this in six inhabitants. As they traded pretty vigorously with these people, 60 people developed the signs of schizophrenia. So he thought he published that, but it's just an informal observation, wasn't a formal study. He came back. He took a job at the Philadelphia VA hospital. This was uh, in the uh, 60s when they still had closed, locked wards of 40 inpatients, all with paranoid schizophrenia being medicated. And so they controlled their coming and going, controlled their diet. He thought, you know, based on this crazy thing I saw in New Guinea, what happens to the paranoid schizophrenics here if I take all wheat and grains out of their diet? So he did it, he and his colleagues. And they watched marked improvement. There was less uh, auditory hallucinations, hearing voices, Mm -hmm. less paranoid. They weren't cured. They were just less schizophrenic. Did that for four weeks, added it back, added wheat and grains back. All the signs came back, took it away again. They got better, gave it back. They got worse. Uh, a group in uh, University of Sheffield in the UK said, what the heck is that? We're going to try to disprove it. Let's try it. They did the same thing. 40 people closed wards of, of schizophrenics, took away the wheat, watched them get better, gave it back, watched them get worse. Take away, get better, add it back, gets worse. On a Well, this sparked a whole furor because it suggested that at least the worsening of paranoid schizophrenia was in part due to consumption of grains. So that was one of the, uh, one of the observations that really kind of start, ignited investigation, what this thing is. Uh, but in parallel with that were the changes introduced by agribusiness and genetics research, not to screw with us, mm. but to increase yield and increase performance in a, in a farm. So pest resistance, for instance, one of the things they did the farmers and agribusiness people was choose strains that had greater quantities of wheat germaglutinin mm. and phytates because they're both pest resistant compounds. It makes the wheat more resistant to mold, to insects. And so they, cult- they increased the content by selection, selecting breeds that had higher content, not acknowledging that wheat germaglutinin, for instance, is a very potent bowel toxin to humans. Mm. And Phytates, while we're told you must eat grains for their B vitamins and fiber, they didn't tell you that phytates bind to almost all iron, zinc, magnesium, manganese, and calcium, and you pass it out in the toilet. And so this causes, so grain consumption causes huge nutrient deficiencies, mineral deficiencies in particular. Uh, So you'll see this uh, more so in females uh, for unclear reasons. They get, for instance, iron deficiency anemia. And their hemoglobins, a normal hemoglobin is about 12. Theirs drops about six or seven. They're fatigued. They're breathless. They're cold all the time. They're given iron pills, iron injections, blood transfusions, <laughs> and, and they don't respond. They only respond temporarily. And they're stuck with this terrible anemia. Go off grains. They're back to normal hemoglobin within two weeks. Very common, by the way. And so it wasn't it was one thing. It was a whole series of things that happened. Uh, but the great irony is, as you point out, is the USDA. By the way, it's the USDA that issues dietary guidelines, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the USDA. The USDA 
is not a consumer agency. It's mm-hmm. the agency meant to support agribusiness. And there, it's like the, imagine the SEC that regulates the investment market, right? What if they also gave you investment advice? Yeah. Wouldn't that be a conflict of interest, right? Yeah, you should invest with, with so-and-so. And, but also, but the USDA is in a weird position of offering dietary advice to Americans while also being the friend and advocate of agribusiness. So who do you think is behind the dietary yeah. <laughs> yeah. guidelines? There's another another quote I would love to read um, from your book that I think might all add some additional color here. And, and this is also related to bacteria and endotoxemia and LPS. And this is the quote again, me quoting you. Like humans, bacteria and fungi live and die. Although their relations don't conduct funerals for them or erect, he- erect headstones over their graves, their life cycles, unlike our many decades, are measured in hours to days, as you mentioned, reflecting a lightning fast rate of turnover. With that much life and death refl- cycling in your GI tract involving trillions of creatures, where do the byproducts go upon their death? Without wills or estates to settle, the remains of trillions of microbes are recycled by other microbes. Some are metabolized by you and others are passed out into the toilet. But in, I'm going to butcher this, but dysbiosis, dysbiosis, some remnants remnants also invade our bloodstream and thereby are exported to other parts of the body. In 2007, a French research group reported on this critical phenomenon. They labeled the flood of toxic bacterial breakdown products as metabolic endotoxemia, and it has been found to underlie numerous modern health conditions, especially those driven by inflammation, such as type 2 diabetes, heart, heart disease, and neurodegenerative disease. The main driver of endotoxemia is something called a lipo, lipolosaccharide, or LPS, as, we, as we've talked about, which originates in the cell walls of organisms such as E. coli and Klebsiella. When those microbes die, their cell walls, their cell wall contents are liberated. And if the integrity of the intestinal wall has been compromised by pathogenic species, the LPS can pass through this broken barrier into the blood. The consequences of endotoxemia are especially powerful when all 30 feet of the GI tract are filled with unhealthy microbes. We've gone over a lot of, I think, what I just read in terms of you know how this actually can lead to you know disease in a human being or unwellness or um a, just a general lack of health does anything else come to mind related to that specific section that you think might be helpful for just a lay audience that is trying stumbling through the world in a, in an attempt to live and feel as well as they possibly can in in their life you know, the sad thing, Dan, is that the dietary guidelines are ridiculous. They're not crafted by with science in mind. They're crafted with money in mind. Uh, unfortunately, my colleagues, physicians, ma- mainstream physicians, thankfully, there are functional medicine practitioners, naturopaths, chiropractors, and some MDs who actually are interested in health. Most are not. Most are interested in revenues for their healthcare system and in their own pocket. And so it means that there's uh, they practice what I call willful ignorance. That is, if you have a choice of putting in, let's say, a stent or other procedure and getting paid thousands of dollars or educating somebody on how not to need those procedures, you're going to choose the procedure. It pays better. And so you're going to become completely ignorant of issues like diet, 
or the huge role of vitamin D, for instance, in, in cardiovascular health, or uh, prescribe, let's say, a biologic agent at $12,000 per month, per month, Dan, rather than teach somebody, well, it's SIBO and endotoxemia that's inflaming your joint. Let's talk about your microbiome instead. Instead, they prescribe, the, there's often a kickback mechanism for those really expensive drugs. And so we have a healthcare system that essentially doesn't give a damn. So, because I'd like to say, go to your doctor and say, I think I have SIBO. Well, the doctor's going to say 99% of the time, would you consult Dr. Google again? Mm -hmm. Or there's nothing wrong with you. Or worse, we looked at you with endoscopy and colonoscopy. You, there's nothing wrong with you. You want an antidepressant? In other words, medicine is not caught up with the science, even though the science is coming out at it's, it's, it's coming out in a flood, an avalanche. And my colleagues who are in practice, who are busy in their defense, yeah. have not kept up. But what, I, what bothers me about my colleagues is that they deliver ignorance with authority. Mm -hmm. You don't need that probiotic. It's stupid. There's nothing wrong with you. But they deliver this kind of message out of ignorance. And so I, I tell, tell you this because what it means is you and your listeners, it's, it's up to you to take the reins become educated in this, but it's important to recognize that uh, we as just everyday people have incredible power over our health. And the last person who's going to help you achieve that is the doctor because he doesn't know. Mm. So you got to do it yourself. The diet, those common nutrient deficiencies that are unique to modern life, uh, returning to a diet similar to what our ancestors ate, not what the USDA tells you to eat. So if if you were a primitive human being, uh, as as uh, humans lived in the past three million years until relatively recently, you'd get up from your hut, cave, tree, whatever. You'd grab your spear, club, axe, bow and arrow, and kill something. It might take you a few hours. You open the stomach. You often eat the stomach contents. You eat some of the intestines. You drag the carcass back to your camp. You roast it over a fire. Crack open the skull, eat the brain, tongue, heart, pancreas, kidneys, liver. In other words, you don't throw away the fat and organs to eat the lean meat. Of course not. That's stupid. And you eat the meat, of course. And by the way, you get uh, numerous nutrients that way. You get some vitamin D from the liver. You get collagen and hyaluronic acid from the brain and other organs. That's a deficiency we haven't mentioned. So modern people are also very deficient in collagen and hyaluronic acid because they don't do things like eat the brain, don't eat the tongue or or or, or heart or pancreas, don't tend to slow cook uh, tough cuts of meat. They they choose tend like lean cuts with no fat in it, and throw away the bone. So, and by the way, when you're, when you're deficient in collagen and hyaluronic acid, you have acceleration of skin aging, you have accelerated breakdown of joints and you have higher blood pressure and probably acceleration of cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. So it's all about returning to the way your, your body is programmed genetically. If you watch the lion gore a zebra and tear open its chest and brain and gnaw. And you said, that's disgusting. We're going to lock that lion up and feed it good things like spinach and kale. <laughs> what happens to the lion? It's dead <laughs> within who knows, a week, two weeks. And so because that lion's diet is programmed into its genetic code. Every species has a diet programmed into its genetic code. And we do too. Mm -hmm. And to tell us that we need this need seeds of grasses. That's what grains are. Seeds of grasses is completely absurd. 
And then it was all worsened by the efforts of agribusiness. So what we're doing is going back to the diet that's programmed into your genetic code, killing things, Hmm. fish, shellfish, roots, vegetables, leaves, berries, nuts. Uh, And that's what happens, people. And then we also restore lost microbes and push back the overgrowth of unhealthy stool microbes. So what we're really doing is trying to restore humans the way they were supposed to have been all all, all along, but we're not treating anything. Mm. So so there's a difference. Yeah. To me, so much of this is what modern knowledge should be about, right? Is taking what, you just mentioned this, you know, evolution. I mean, from my perspective, evolutionary is just the binding principle that should be the first filter through try in an, in an attempt to understand anything about yourself because we are products of that system that products of that process and human beings have been on this earth for hundreds of thousands of years living often extremely differently from the way we are right now and it shouldn't surprise us i think once you begin to learn about the details of evolution that some of the expectations and habits of modern life may not be particularly wise or healthy given our animal nature. There are a couple other things I, I'd love to read to you and, um, and and then just tell you some just personal anecdotes. One of my favorite quotes about um, you know health and wellness in general is when it comes to medicine and nutrition, subtract before you add. I know for me personally, I, I was telling you this story earlier when I was, you know, in, in high school and adolescence and what my diet was like then. Um, I think it's easy for me now to forget how unwell I felt so often back then because of what I was consuming. And the great gains, I think, in my own personal well-being have been um, probably only two or three things, you know, sleeping enough. Uh, mitigating my stress levels to a, a, a certain degree that I can handle, um, removing certain uh, components to my diet that were really staples before the age of about 25. Almost all of that has to do with grains and pasta. This is long before I was familiar with your work or really any any work that seemed to validate um, that experience that I was having. But just the tinkering from my own experience was leading me to these conclusions personally. And then about five years ago, I think just for me personally, the uh, you know two additional components to life that made it just made me f- just feel so much better. I was always into exercise, and I was always an active person, but the combination of daily, and now I do this every morning, daily heated vinyasa yoga in a 95 to 100 degree room where I am just dumping sweat out of my body. And I come out of those classes feeling better than any after having tried any drug or alcohol in my life. And those compounded benefits last the rest of the day. And then the alternative to that is me jumping in cold bodies of water. Um, I used to live in Austin, which I think I mentioned, and there's a, a famous, uh, mu- municipal public spring fred, uh, pool there called Barton Springs, which is consistently in the mid to high sixties. And if I found that if I was doing either cold exposure in the morning or heat therapy with some body movement, um, it was like I had a different brain. 
Um, and you know, who you are in your identity, I think is just an interesting philosophical question for me personally, but adding those, one of those two habits. And right now it's more the, the heated vinyasa yoga. I was a better friend. I was a better thinker. I was a better worker. I was calmer. I was better company. I think I was more creative and it, it calmed down so much of just the negative neurosis that I think most people, myself included, tend to experience. And I feel like, and maybe this is some of your inspiration for getting involved in this work, when you find something that really works, that does take some effort and some changes of habit, and you know that it has made you unquestionably a better human being and a healthier person and just somebody who is more joyful, um, happier. I know those are simple words, but they're very true. You want to share that information with people that you care about and suggest that maybe it's worth them trying it as well, especially if they're not doing particularly well. Does that, that's a long statement I just made there, but um, I think the general point is one that dovetails into a comment you just made, which is the importance of taking your own health into your own hands and beginning to experiment with your own biology to learn what actually makes you well um, or better. I'd love to know for you personally if any of that resonates and if that is also you know part of your personal journey here of spending so much of your time and energy and advocating for these ideas because you also know they work. Yeah, you have to do it on your own because really the, the doctor with rare exceptions knows almost nothing. You know, I, I was on the inside of healthcare for many years. I did 17 years of education and training, and then I practiced for 25 years. And I was behind closed doors. So I heard exactly what went on. The conversations are not about how do we do a better job helping people become healthy. It's more like how do we increase our bypass surgery volume next year by 18%? How do we increase revenues? How do we get better reimbursement? It's about money. Yeah. And so to expect your doctor to know something about health is, is just, it's irrational. It, it cannot, cannot be done with rare exceptions. There are, there are a growing number of doctors who are actually interested in health, but the mainstream MDs. And you know what? I was, I was talking to an investor in, on the East Coast a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you know what you look for in investments? I said, what? He said, it wasn't, you know, Find a disease that's poorly served and find a better solution. That is not what he, he said. The first criteria is it must be able to, it must be able to charge over a hundred thousand dollars a year for the drug. It wasn't about the disease. It wasn't about improving. It was about how much money they would make. And I've heard this. Oh, I applied for. Uh, I started applications for federal grant funding, and I'm talking to these people, and they're asking me, well, "Where's your Where's phase one for your drug application?" I said, "This is not a drug." They said, "Well, of course it's a drug." Where's you, you? This is what we do. We support drug research. I said it's not a drug. Didn't compute. They couldn't get. In other words, the world is geared towards the pharmaceutical industry. You know, I, I realized just how powerful they were. I always knew, knew how powerful they were, but I didn't really fully appreciate it until I wrote a book called Undoctored. Yeah, came out in 2015, I think. Well, before then, I'd been on Doctor Oz four times, CBS This Morning, all the TV shows, Open Doors, and then Undoctored came out. All doors, 100% <laughs> then were shut. Well, at first I thought it was me. I thought, what the? But then I recognized that this was true for virtually all authors of books on health and nutrition. Uh, it has to be the power of direct consumer drug advertising 
And so now if you try to get on TV uh, or in print media, they'll turn you down. And so if you watch, you know, morning news, for instance, you'll see there's no interviews, not even a casual one of uh, a book author on a health topic or nutrition, zero, zero. Mm. Uh, there's been no more investigative reporting on health. The last one, the last investigative in-depth report was John Stossel in 2007. Despite the fact that healthcare is a $3 trillion disaster, it's bankrupting people, it's out of control, it's filled with corruption, it's filled with willful ignorance. So that's why I'm very grateful for what you're doing hmm. and other podcasters and bloggers, because if we're barred, if you and I and other people with a message of health are barred from major broadcast media, also cable hmm. and print media, well, how we get a message out? Even if you do a search on Google, let's say prostate disease or pregnancy, you'll see the first several pages are all pharma. Hmm. So they, they've gotten as far as there's no such thing as organic search anymore. It's all programmed in the interests of pharma. I don't know why Google did that. I can't imagine they want more money, but for some reason. So, for instance, WebMD comes up first almost always. WebMD is 100% pharma funded. Mm. And so we've got to do things like this, Dan, because uh, it is a David versus Goliath. But if we want a message of health, so people have to recognize health does not come from TV reports, does not come from investigative journalism. Does not, certainly does not come from your doctor. Well, who's going to take care of health then? Yeah. Well, you people have to take the reins themselves. And there are growing numbers of uh, naturopaths and, and health coaches and those kinds of people who are interested in health. Hmm. I know, you know, I, I just mentioned a little bit about my own, you know, N of one um, experience with attempts to try to improve my own health. And I, he has become much more popular over the past five years. And I know a little bit about the the genesis of his interest in health and mental health in general, which is the the life story of Wim Hof and how my understanding of what inspired him to investigate depression in his own way is that his wife of many years, who was the mother, I think, of four of his children, committed suicide mm -hmm. when she was, I think, in her late 40s or early 50s. And he went on a quest to try to investigate on, on his own as a admittedly a non-doctor what may have been causing her her ailment and one of his primary conclusions as i understand it is that it was about he he believed it was largely connected to in her inflammation and that is what got him interested in you know cold exposure therapy and it's his belief that um with some practice and with some consistent exposure that the problems that took his, and I think this is very difficult for people that have not had, you know, experience knowing someone with depression or who have ex experienced depression themselves, just how debilitating it can be for people. And, it, you know, this is a very American reaction to people who are depressed just to think positively. And, it's one of the stupidest things I think you can possibly tell people who are who are really unwell. Um, and hit, you know, Wim's view of this was it's changes in action and changes in biology that can really help someone's mind. And uh, you know, if you spend three minutes listening to a podcast interview of Wim Hof, it's it's obvious that 
one, he looks so much younger than he actually is. And the amount of energy this man has, uh, it, it's difficult to think that it's not at least somewhat connected to the habits of cold exposure that he himself has has brought into his own life. I'd love to talk specifics with you about you know, habits and choices that you think people can make to really improve their health and their quality of life. And, you know, we've, we've danced around this and I think you've already brought up some ideas of, um, how to improve gut health, which will, you know, very possibly improve people's mental health and health in general. If you had to give, you know, one or two pieces of advice to people to over a short period of time, or even a few months, change the traditional American lifestyle, American diet, what pieces of advice would you give to them to properly orient them towards a life that you think might really improve their quality of life and their health in general? Well, sad to say, Dan, it means plugging your ears, right? To the <laughs> conventional advice, whether it comes from the American Heart Association or the American Diabetes Association, your doctor, your gastroenterologist, the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, USDA, they, you know, if they all got it right, and Dan and I and your listeners all say, wow, this stuff, I feel great, I'm slender, I don't have any health problems, well, then we wouldn't have to talk about these things. But they've gotten it so wrong yeah. that we have the world's worst ever, worst ever epidemic of obesity, of heart disease, cancers, dementia on the rise. These diseases are on the rise. By the way, if we looked at indigenous populations, like the Yanomami, the Brazilian rainforest, or the Matsas in the highlands of Peru, or the Maasai in Kenya, or the Hadza in Tanzania, or the uh, New Guinean uh, jungle dwellers, all these populations, they have no diabetes, no coronary disease. There's no such thing as ulcerative colitis. No one has hemorrhoids. No one has irritable bowel syndrome. There's no Crohn's disease. Uh, they have other problems. They got worm <laughs> infestations and injury, right? Broken legs and, and dengue fever, malaria. They have infection and injury, but they don't have, there's almost zero what the anthropologists call diseases of civilization. Yeah. We don't have, we have injury, but not quite to the extent they do. We have infection, but not like they do. We have diseases of civilization. Well, there's an important lesson in that. I think the lesson is as best you can revert back to the things they do and they got right. And by the way, their microbiomes are extremely different than ours. And even though these are populations on different continents, they don't travel, right? Yeah. They, they have microbiomes very similar to one another. So that observation has been interpreted to mean that they have Stone Age pre-agricultural microbiomes. So one of the hot questions is, should we try to mimic? Uh, pro probably not entirely, because th there are some modern features of the microbiome that are probably beneficial adaptations. They have species we don't have. We have species they don't have. For instance, they have a whole bunch of what are called spirochetes. Uh, and we don't have, we have almost none with the most popular spirochete being the one that causes syphilis. So, but we also have a lot of bifidobacteria and that's probably a beneficial adaptation that emerges uh, from the consumption of uh, uh, the products of mammary glands of animals. So, but it, the, the, at least we know that the modern microbiome is dramatically changed from what it, where it came from. 
But it also means that these insights are yielding incredible new ideas. Dan, for instance, this idea of depression. So SIBO, first order of business, because the endotoxin. Could, could, could you define that? for? I should have asked this earlier, but to define SIBO, what exactly that means? I'm sorry. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That's right. that situation where you have 30 feet of mostly fecal species, and then they cause an increase in intestinal permeability and their breakdown products, the so-called LPS or lipopolysaccharide endotoxin enters the bloodstream. That's how you get all these other effects in the brain elsewhere. And like that study you pointed out, a German group actually took bacterial endotoxin and injected it in people who were not depressed and made them depressed. (laughs) Now there's also some work out of UCLA. So serotonin is important for not having depression. That's why one of the more uh, useful antidepressants are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors blocks reuptake the reprocessing of it so it raises serotonin levels ssris well 90 plus percent of all the body's serotonin comes from the gi tract and a group at ucla asked this question what species are in charge of that effect uh, causing intestinal production of serotonin and one stood out called teresobacter sanguinis that's responsible for about 50% of all the body's serotonin. Not all of it, but a lot, large part of it. Now, that's not available yet. So I don't talk too much about things that we can't get. Yeah. But if it's discovered, in a few years, it will become available to us. And we can get it as a probiotic, or we can get it, we can make yogurt out of it or other fermented foods. And by the way, it doesn't have to be yogurt, it could be fermented veggies, could be sauerkraut, could be I like to ferment hummus. Or salsas, those are fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's numerous different ways to ferment microbes. You can either ferment using some kind of starting bacteria as a probiotic, or you can buy starter cultures, or you can actually use the microbes resident on the surface of a vegetable, and you can propagate those. And that, by the way, Dan, it's real important for your listeners to know one of the most important things is not a commercial probiotic because of the problem we talk problems we talked about. The most important thing in restoring microbes are fermented foods that most Americans have forgotten about ever since Frigidaire found out about Freon in 1927, 1928, and home refrigeration became affordable. And people thought that fermented foods were were tainted, were rotten. No, they're good for you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we ferment all kinds of foods. And that's a way of restoring some very important microbes like Leuconostoc mesenteroides. I, I know these names are wacky. Or Pediococcus <laughs> pentasaceus. And the crazy thing, this came out of research out of Stanford, the Sonnenbergs, uh, Justin and Erica, husband, wife, microbiology team. They showed that frequent consumption of fermented foods, kimchi, kombucha, sauerkraut, fermented veggies, yogurt, kefirs, etc. Frequent consumption of fermented foods so even though you're getting those species, the Pediococcus and the Leuconostoc, those aren't the ones that take up residence. They somehow set the stage for the proliferation of tons of other healthy microbes. Not quite clear how this works. Mm-hmm. So I regard those fermented foods kind of like a farmer. A farmer can generate huge amounts of crops. And that's what these fermented foods do. They help generate tons of other healthy species. Hmm. And just to double down on that, right? And and I'd love to get you know specific recommendations that you have for people, even just to try them out for you know a week, a month, and just see if these things actually do improve their quality of life. 
you just mentioned fermented foods. If you could go over again, specific recommendations you might have for people specific to fermented foods that they may try that's available at a grocery store nearby, a Whole Foods near them, what would you recommend they, they try out to, to test and to see if it improves their life? Yeah, you're right. You can. There's a growing list of commercially available fermented foods. You can do this in your home. You don't need. You don't need to buy anything except if you want to ferment a specific microbe. Let's say you want to ferment lactobacillus gasseri or bacillus coagulants. You can buy that microbe, and then you can ferment something with it. Yeah. Or you can just take, let's say, cucumbers, chop them up. You ha- you have to use filtered water because there can't be any chlorine or fluoride in it. You have to use non-iodized salt. So you make a brine, about a tablespoon and a half per uh, uh, per gallon. I'm sorry, per uh, pint or per liter. Uh, veggies have to be submerged below the surface, so you do need some kind of device to keep them down. I have a jar, an old olive jar, for instance. I have a glass, drinking glass, happens to fit in the mouth. Some people use a little plate with a stone on it. Anything to keep the veggies from below the surface because you want anaerobic fermentation without oxygen. Mm. And then depending on the mix of vegetables, how how finely you cut them, usually three days to two weeks. And you'll see it looks kind of cloudy and murky. That's good. That's bacteria. Mm. So it's very easy to do. But as you point, you can buy them now. Kimchi is probably among the best. Mm. You know, the South the Koreans have the lowest incidence of heart disease in the world. Mm. And we we can't say it's because of fermented foods, but it's probably, probably due to the consumption of fermented foods. Likewise, Japanese, very low incidence of numerous um, uh, diseases, including cancers, except for stomach cancer. They have a unique problem with H. pylori, Hmm. Helicobacter pylori. That's a microbe that can infect the stomach and cause stomach cancer. So there's actually a national campaign in Japan to eradicate uh, H. pylori present only in 15% of Americans. Hmm. But my, my point is, consum- frequent consumption of fermented foods is probably an extremely powerful health strategy. Hmm. And I know. Go ahead. So kimchi is at the top of the list. Sauerkrauts, but the, people have to be aware, most sauerkraut is not fermented. It's just hmm. in uh, brine and vinegar. So you want if you're going to buy a, a, a sauerkraut, it must say live cultures or fermented or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the, one little trick I like is there's a fungus called Saccharomyces boulardii. It's a cousin of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the microbe used to make beer and wine. Mm-hmm. So we use this Saccharomyces boulardii that is adapted to the human body. You can buy it in the U.S. as a commercial product called Florastor, F-L-O-R-A-S-T-O-R. And once again, when they sell it to you, they sell it to you in low counts. So we're going to increase the counts by fermenting. So what I do is we take one capsule, empty it into any juice, any volume of juice, just so long as the juice does not have any preservatives. You can't have any potassium sorbate, no sodium benzoate or other preservatives. You just want juice, plain juice, like apple cider, the cloudy apple cider. I've done mango, passion fruit, grape juice. Uh, cranberries isn't, isn't the best vehicle. When you get to really tart juice, they don't ferment too well. But a juice with no preservative, empty one capsule, cap it very lightly, because you'll see within 24 hours, it starts to bubble. And it's producing huge quantities of carbon dioxide. And if you cap it tightly, it's going to explode, literally explode. Mm-hmm. So you have to cap it real lightly and then give it 48 hours. 
and then refrigerate to slow down fermentation. And we drink a quarter a half uh, a quarter a half cup a couple of times a day. One of those powerful things you can do because even though it's a fungus, like those fermented foods, the fungus doesn't take up long term residence. It only stays for a couple of days. But it somehow sets the stage for the proliferation of other healthy microbes. And by the way, Dan, it's one of the most important and effective things people can do if they have to take a course of antibiotics. Let's say you have a terrible urinary tract infection, you have to take an antibiotic. This is one of the most important things you can do to preserve the integrity of your gastrointestinal population. And by the way, the vaginal and urinary microbiomes are proving to be very, very important and very interesting topics. So a third of the world's population of females has what's called vaginosis, vaginal dysbiosis, and that caused by antibiotics and some other factors. And this sets a woman up for HIV, gonorrhea, human papillomavirus, herpes, premature delivery of a child, uh, stillbirths, pelvic inflammatory disease. In other words, big implications. And the vaginal microbiome communicates with the urinary microbiome. We thought for years urine was sterile, normal urine. It's not sterile. It's filled with microbes. And most of those microbes come from the vagina. Isn't that interesting? And so an unhealthy vaginal microbiome is low in lactobacillus and high in something called Gardnerella vaginalis. Well, you can do this. Hmm. And all those problems go away. Reduce premature labor. Reduced public inflammatory disease, reduce urinary tract infections. In other words, <laughs> the vagina is the center of the female universe, which is really interesting. How do they communicate? There's no communication between the vagina and the urinary system. Hmm. Probably contiguity, nearness, right? And by the way, that also means stool. The GI microbes also talk to the vagina. There's no connection. At least that one that's been discovered. So likewise, so I call it the perineal party. That part of the body is called the perineum. So (laughs) there's all kinds of crosstalk. But it means, for instance, a woman who's having recurrent urinary tract infections, which is a big problem for ladies, especially as they get older. Every time you take an antibiotic, it screws up your microbiome. GI, vaginal, urinary. Mm -hmm. And so the solution is not more antibiotic after antibiotic. It's address the vaginal microbiome. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And for people, you know, people come to you for help. They're they're I would imagine they're often desperate and they look to you for guidance in terms of how to be more well in this world. And I'd love to know for you, you know, if you could and given conceding the point that all people are different and there is significant fluctuation most likely in the kind of habits and lifestyle that might work for various people but on average if you could design you know the healthiest day for a patient of yours and what would you include in that day and maybe more importantly what would you insist that they omit from their habits their diet etc what are your thoughts on that so, of course, we have to plug our ears, right, to the advice of doctors, the, the government, dietary uh, agencies, advertising, marketing, because, as you know, marketing is filled with fictions. And so we essentially have to close our ears to all that stuff because it's everywhere, right? There's lots of people eager to make money off you. So 
Uh, and we revert back to a diet that mimics the way people are supposed to eat. So we have to, it means we have to reject a lot of things. We don't follow advice to cut fat or saturated fat. That's ridiculous. There never was good science to support that, even though the American Heart Association reiterated the low-fat message just recently. So they actually said this, Dan. They actually said, based on the studies performed in the 1950s, we think you should restrict total fat and saturated fat. Hmm. In other words, garbage science. Back in the 50s, no one knew how to design a proper clinical trial. And they did goofy, goofy, st- really goofy stuff. That we, nowadays, we think it was nuts. Like um, uh, make people come to the hospital for their diet five days a week. <laughs> yeah. Stuff that's practice that made no sense, but that was how it was back then, 70 years ago. But that's the evidence the American Heart Association to this day uses supportable. So we have to reject a lot. Cut your fat, cut your saturated fat, eat more healthy whole grains. Ridiculous advice. So we have to ignore all that stuff and instead adopt a diet that you would follow if you didn't have a supermarket or a stove or an oven. Now, obviously, we do use those things, but it's going back to eating meats, poultry, eat the skin, <laughs> save the bones. You, you make soups and stews out of them. If you have a piece of pork, eat the fat, buy fatty cuts. Don't, so get rid of this whole idea. If you're going to have dairy, dairy has some issues, but if you're going to have dairy, never skim low fat, go for full fat. We make the yogurts, by the way, with half and half, half cream, half whole milk, which is about 18% fat. Because we want fat. Fat was the most healthy part. There are problems with dairy, like whey protein, casein, beta A1, some other things. The least problematic component of dairy is the fat. (laughs) That's what they're selling is low fat. Mm -hmm. So uh, reject the notions of low fat and dietary advice, healthy whole grains, all that stuff. Think about what nutrients are lacking in modern life. Well, we drink filtered water, right? So magnesium. We don't spend enough time outside and we lose the capacity to activate vitamin D in the skin as we get older. It's very common. You get somebody who's 65 or 70 years old, they have a dark brown tan from Miami or Florida or something, and they have rock bottom deficiency of vitamin D because they lost the capacity to activate vitamin D. So we, we get vitamin D, iodine. So you're, you're coastal in New York. I'm in Wisconsin, not coastal. Yeah. And so there's no iodine in the soil. And so this area... Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, we used to be called the glitter belt because 20% of the population, as much as 35% in some areas, had enlarged thyroid glands on the neck, goiter. And if it got bad enough, you would die of that. It would crush your airway. You would die of heart failure. Uh, it's called myxedema coma. And if your great grandma was around, you say, hey, great grandma, tell me about goiter. She would say, oh, Dan, you wouldn't believe what it was like when I was a little girl. My next door neighbor died. My teacher died of it. This was a big problem. We all forgot when iodized salt was introduced and the FDA said, use more iodized salt. They actually said this, keep your family goiter free. Hmm. Well, when they came out with diet advice, cut your fat, eat more healthy whole grains, they did not realize that is a salt retaining lifestyle because you generate insulin resistance and you retain salt. But they didn't understand that. So they said, quit using all that salt that we told you to use in 1924 and onwards. So people cut their salt. They don't have iodine. Goiters are coming back then. Goiters are coming back. Hmm. Not quite as vigorously as 19, before 1924, because now a lot of the food, chain, the food supply is global. And you get you know food from Mexico and Peru and that kind of stuff. So it's not quite as bad as it was, but it's coming back. But now look, we're, we're returning to the way 
the lifestyle that's programmed into your genetic code. Mm-hmm. We're also restoring the microbes you were supposed to have as best as we can tell if we don't try to mimic the microbiome of indigenous populations. But I tell you, Dan, it works. And more often than not, you don't need the doctor. In fact, this happens all the time, Dan. People who follow these ideas go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, what kind of med- medication you take? They say, none. They say, oh, don't be funny. How many, what medication you take? They say, none. they don't understand health. They don't even recognize health when they see it. And so it's a really peculiar disconnect where the people in healthcare don't even understand or recognize health, but health is achievable. And now with these microbiome insights, we're starting to see people turn the clock back even. You know, my, just to summarize there, right. Like my takeaway from, you know, reading your, your work and talking to you today um, in terms of additions that might help people's, you know, just general health, you know, to me, it seems like the big, the big plus is potentially fermented foods, the big removal. And I think this is what got you famous is whole grains and wheats and that addition and that subtraction. Am I right that those would be your two primary uh, pieces of advice for addition and omission. Is there anything else that you think is really worth um, people considering pretty seriously about adding or subtracting from their their general diets and lifestyles? The vitamin D is really big, Dan. That's what I have. I haven't talked about a lot just because I've got so much to talk about. But the sure. vitamin D is a big deal, um, it, 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 despite some of what you hear in the headlines. But vitamin D has big effect for instance on mood. Mm. And anti, it's anti-inflammatory and reduces insulin resistance. So big, big effects. And also restoring those lost microbes. So uh, fermented foods is a terrific start to restoring lost microbes. But sometimes you have to selectively, like the rotary yogurt or other fermented foods with rotary, reimplanting that one that boosts oxytocin and takes up resin the upper GI tract. That's a now. Maybe in 10 years, we get a better strategy. Maybe we say something like, take this probiotic that has 15 species and strains, and they'll implant for life. Mm. You know, a real effective probiotic, you should be able to take once, and it populates your GI tract for a lifetime. No one's been able to do that yet. Like, Like the microbiome your mom gives you, some of those microbes are with you for a lifetime. So if she gave you Bifidobacterium infantis, you're likely to have it. For a lifetime, unless, of course, you're exposed to antibiotics and other things. Why can't we do that with a probiotic? Because no one's come up with a mix of, of microbes that are strong enough and collaborate for long-term residents. So, but that may come in future. In the meantime, we choose our microbes. And by the way, people say, oh, this is too overwhelming, too much. So I tell them, well, when it comes to the microbes, think like you're going to a restaurant. You go to a restaurant, waitress hands you a menu. You don't freak out and say, there's no way I can order all these appetizers and main dishes and desserts. (laughs) You pick and choose the dishes you want. Same thing here. Hmm. If you want smoother skin, better sleep, uh, like other people more, and greater libido, let's ferment lactobacillus rotary. If you want to shrink your waist, reduce inflammation and joint, for instance, let's ferment lactobacillus gasseri. Let's say you want to recover faster from strenuous exercise or work, let's ferment bacillus coagulants. Uh, Let's say you want a healthier child, baby. Let's ferment that sleeps through the night, more likely to, 
has 50% fewer bowel movements, more formed, and 50% fewer diaper changes for mom and dad, less likely to have asthma, type 1 diabetes, other autoimmune diseases, less likely to become obese or a type 2 diabetic. Let's make sure the baby has bifidobacter infantis that most women have lost and thereby unable to pass on to their child. Because when, if the baby breastfeeds, it cannot metabolize what are called human milk oligosaccharides in breast milk because the baby needs that for neurological development. And if the, if mom didn't have bifidobacter infantis because she took antibiotics, she can't pass it on to the baby. The baby has impaired neurological maturation. So restoring that microbe. So I, I this is a little hairy, but that's how you look at it. If you want that effect, get this microbe. And is it your is it your view that the way people would be able to access these microbes are, are these future technologies that you see coming here quickly, or are there yogurts and other fermented foods that people can take at present that could help trigger some of this? What's available to people now um, that can potentially help them with this? Everything I've named is available commercially, except for the Teresobacter sanguinis I mentioned for depression. That one is not yet available. But everything else, Bifidobacter infantis, Lactobacillus ruderi, are all commercially available. Uh, and they're typically not, not too terribly expensive. But the, the problem is, uh, uh, when they're sold to you, they're sold to you in, in low counts. That's the problem. That's why we ferment them. Mm. So, so the company that developed the Bifidobacter infantis for children is Avivo, E-V-I-V-O, Evolved Biosciences in um, uh, Sacramento, California. And a lot of that science was performed at University of California, Davis. They did a really good job of running through the experimental trials, clinical trials to prove that this stuff works. So they sell it to you as a product called Avivo and little vials of powder that they tell mom, express some breast milk, mix the probiotic with the breast milk, feed it to your child. I say, you can do better than that. How about mom gets the microbe prior to delivery, mm. like during pregnancy, makes yogurt out of it for much bigger counts. They sell it to, I think, 16.5 billion counts, which sounds like a lot. But once again, we're getting hundreds of billions. So we make yogurt out of it. It's delicious. Mom eats yogurt or other fermented food during pregnancy. She populates her gut and vagina and urinary tract with this microbe. Baby's delivered, she passed the microbe on to the baby as it was supposed to have been. And she also, by the way, populates the breast. The breast has a microbiome also. And so she's giving the baby. Now, you can, the mom can still give it to the baby directly. But when mom gives it to the baby through delivery and, and, breast, and breastfeeding, she's giving that microbe in the context of a larger microbiome. And this, this one species, Bifidobacter infantis, comes to occupy as many as 90% of all microbes in, a, in an infant. So it's very important. And yet, Dan, the vast majority of ladies have lost this microbe and can't pass it on to their children. And so these are supplements, right? These are these are powders that you can mix into yogurts and consume, or how are they how are they administered and given to people? Some are powders in a packet, or in this case, a vial. Some are capsules. Um, so it, it, it's pretty easy. Okay. Think of it like your backyard garden. You're going to plant seeds. You know, you don't plant a whole cucumber, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you separate the seeds from the plant uh, and then you plant the seeds. Same thing here. We're going to plant the seeds in your GI tractor or elsewhere. Okay. 
I know we're getting short of time and I want to, before we close with a final question, I want to thank you again for, for doing this and, and working as you do to try to, you know, I think empower people to try thought experiments and lifestyle habits and changes in diet that you believe will really uh, potentially seriously improve their quality of life. And, um, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier that a big interest of mine in doing that is that the best improvements that I have personally made in my own life have come through private research and knowledge that I think uh, is not secret per se, but is not necessarily in the mainstream that I had to kind of seek out and and test for myself and learn um, learn that way. But um, I'm grateful that you know you write the books that you do and and advocate for things that you believe in. The last question I would like to ask you about, and I, I think this seems to be deeply related to a lot of your work, is the role of antibiotics in our society. And you know, my read on you know, your personal view of antibiotics is that you know they're important, but they're um, they're so much more um, commonly prescribed and used than is necessary. And that there are second order consequences to this that are not widely known. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but that's generally the sense I get from being exposed to your work. Um, I guess I would ask first, is that roughly an accurate assessment of your view of antibiotics? And two, what is in your mind the proper role, the wise role for antibiotics in our society, given what seems like some of the negative second order consequences that maybe? Uh, proliferating in people's biology that are affecting their health. So that whole world, Dan, is evolving rapidly. There's a lot yeah. of issues there. So it is clear, though, the CDC even says a third of all antibiotic prescriptions are inappropriate. So this, so we, we want to minimize exposure to unnecessary. There's a time and place. There's sometimes you really need an antibiotic. Uh, I, I think what's going to happen over time is let's just take repetitive urinary tract infections. Woman has E. coli urinary tract infection, burning pain. And if you don't treat it, it ascends up into the ureters and then to the kidneys and she can get very sick. Yeah. Pyelonephritis, kidneys infection. And then those microbes can enter the bloodstream. She has urinary sepsis. You can die of that. Yeah. So it's not like a you, you can't treat it. Yeah. The, the problem is you take an antibiotic, it gets rid of the E. coli, but it got rid of a lot of healthy microbes also both in the bladder as well as in the vagina and in the GI tract. So a smarter approach would be, okay, got to take the antibiotic and then take steps to restore a healthy gastrointestinal, vaginal, and urinary microbiome. That'll include such things as rotary. That's a biggie because of its um, some of its properties. Ladies need to know about lactobacillus crispatus. C-R-I-S-P-A-T-U-S. The only one I know on the market uh, that's worth looking at is Gerodophilus, the female. Gerodophilus, I think, feminine support, something like that. Mm. And look in the back. It, sh it should list a strain of Lactobacillus crispatus along with some other microbes. There's not enough good commercially available uh, products with crispatus in it. That's the only one I'm aware of where they tell you the strain. You need to know the strain because different crispatus strains are diff have different properties. You want one, this is more than your listeners want to know, but mm -hmm. you want one that produces a lot of lactic acid and produces bacteria sense. Because if, if that crispatus takes up residence in the vagina, 
it shifts the whole population. Vitamin D does also. There's very good work from Virginia that showed that vitamin D restoration completely normalized vaginosis, vaginal dysbiosis. So that between crispatus and vitamin D, a woman has incredible control. Well, why doesn't that come routinely with the antibiotic if you must take an antibiotic? It's not. The doctor, in fact, would probably say that's stupid. There's no such evidence. There is evidence, but it's not being told you by the sales rep who's trying to hawk a $1,000 a month drug because there's no one pitching health. That's why, as you point out, Dan, we've got to do this on our own. The, the science is out there. We just have to, and we're generating some of the science also. One of the, some of the studies I'm doing, we're looking at a way to optimize the roiterite strain for the magne, for um, maximum oxytocin boosting effect. We had that SIBO trial we want to do in future. We have the skin trial to, to, to document the magnitude of increase in dermal thickness using something called high-resolution dermal ultrasound. I have two vaginal trials uh, designed because uh, to, to, I think we can reverse vaginal atrophy. Uh, that's a real big problem for ladies uh, mm-hmm. and maybe repeated urinary tract infections. There's a lot of stuff we got to know, but it's going to change the face of how we manage health. And I love the fact that you do not need a doctor to do almost all of this stuff. Yeah. So if if I'm if I'm hearing that response correctly, it seems like you are in favor of using antibiotics, but that when taking them, they should be supplemented with additional resources to be able to help grow back some of the positive microbiomes that are also eliminated when you're taking antibiotics. Like that Saccharomyces boulardii sparkling juice idea I mentioned to you. Uh, that is a really effective way to preserve your microbiome during a course of antibiotics. So if you must take an antibiotic, make the Saccharomyces boulardii sparkling juice and sip that a couple of times a day. By the way, you don't want to ferment much more. You can go a little bit more than 48 hours to reduce sugar content. 48 hours reduces sugar content by about half, but there is still some sugar. That's why we use very small servings. If you let it go longer, it'll reduce the sugar, but turns it into alcohol. So you'll have hard cider in a week. Or, or or wine if you use grape juice. So we don't want the alcohol. We just want now. Maybe you want the alcohol. You can do that too. But but if you just want the micro, forty eight hours. One quick follow up to this, right? If people who are listening to this who are intrigued and interested and they're in, they they want this information, right? We're talking in an auditory fashion right now. What is the easiest way for them to have access to a document or your resources with your specific recommendations for how they might be able to follow protocols that you believe in when taking antibiotics, for example, or any any of the other suggestions that you've given today? So a lot, most of this is in the super gut book yeah. that's available everywhere. I also have a website called drdavisinfinitehealth.com. And there we have, um, I have a blog there. Um, there's a very busy discussion forum with hundreds of thousands of posts uh, there's also, uh, uh, we have a weekly virtual meetup doing this two-way yeah. Zoom uh, where we talk, uh, we discuss. And one of the things that we do talk about, Dan, is new, you know, when we had, so on a, on a typical meetup, we have about 80 people and I'll ask them, have you learned anything new this week? And yeah. people say, yeah, hey, like recently one guy said, ever since he was a kid, I had to take a bunch of antibiotics for, I think, a urinary infection. He could not stop twirling his hair and pulling it out. Went to numerous doctors. They gave him 
anti-anxiety pills, antidepressants, nothing worked. Guy's in his mid-40s now. So he was always embarrassed because he had a big bald spot that he created by yeah. pulling his hair out. And finally, he he was exposed to yogurt that he made with bifidobacteria longum. And it stopped immediately. And it's not gone away. That's never been described before. Or with rotary, as well as lactobacillus casei shirota, I'm a chronic insomniac, Dan. I have always struggled with sleep. Yeah. I now sleep like a baby, nine hours straight through, almost never wake up, vivid, colorful, kid-like dreams because of Reuteri and KCI Shirota also does that. Uh, I, I put them together, by the way. So chronic insomniac, two o'clock in the morning, don't want to go to bed, right? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Now go to bed, out cold. I added, I made two. The Lactobacillus rotari and the Lactobacillus KCI Shirota. That's available commercially as a product called Yakult. It's in the dairy aisle. It's a little crappy little skim milk. But you just make yogurt with it and you minimize the sugar and additives. And then, by the way, you make future batches from a little bit of the prior batch. So when you make these things, you only need to buy it once, mm-hmm. any microbe, because you make future batches from a bit of the prior batch. So I made yogurt with two of those microbes. I was sleeping 12 hours a night. I had to stop it. You and I have things to do. I can't sleep 12 hours a day. <laughs> so, but it's an illustration of the power of when you learn. And that's never been described in any science. So we're learning this just by doing it. Yeah. Um, I want to say again how much I appreciate you doing this, Bill. I, I know you're a busy guy and... Um, I look forward to following your work, and I think a lot of people who listen to this will as well. I'll include a lot of this information in the show notes as well, um, so that people can have you know more quickly have access to data and information and resources that might they may find uh, useful as well. Um, and and really thank you for doing it. thank you for doing what you're doing, Dan. I really mean this. What you're doing is of critical importance in a day and age where messages of health are being squashed. We have to talk about these things and get the message out to people because it's not coming through the healthcare system. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 